welcome to What in the World Language Podcast. I'm speaking today with Bob Patrick. Bob is beginning his 30th year teaching. Bob teaches Latin in a high school with five other Latin teachers, and that program has 700 students enrolled. Amazing. Bob received his BA in Greek and Hebrew, added a major in Spanish, and holds a PhD in Latin. Bob has also published one Latin novella, Itinera Petri, The Journeys of Peter, a Fantasy. And he has just finished the draft of the second book in that series. So Bob's teaching philosophy can be summed up as, if you're going to be an effective teacher, you really need to love people more than language. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here with you. I'm excited about this. Absolutely. That's quite a CV you have there. <laughs> well, it's a long and twisted journey, right? And I don't know if other people's experiences are like that, but I did not end up where I set out to be. So um, I have learned to expect that what life serves me up is a kind of a new directive. So yeah, yeah. Okay. So our topic today is why so fragile? Equity, justice, and deconstructing the white lens. So, Bob, I started, um, I stated uh, this at the beginning of the first podcast that I did with John Cowart, but I think bears repeating here. I believe it's up to us, white individuals, to do the heavy lifting and dismantling systemic racism. It's our job to have these tough conversations at school, at home, in the workplace, or wherever because people of color do not owe us any explanations about race and dismantling white supremacy. What do you think about that statement, Bob? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm completely on board with that. And as I say that, that I'm completely on board with that. Um, I am as best as I am able engaging that reality and also aware that as a white man in this country, I am so blind to what some of what that means. Um, so, you know, I have, um, I have colleagues around me all day long who are experiencing the realities of white supremacy in the country that we live in. Mm-hmm. And some of them are white and some of them are, are, are people of color. And those experiences are radically different. I'm a department chair. And I get called on to interact with how parents are perceiving their, their child's teacher. And I notice, I notice that the interactions with teachers of color is, are different from interactions with white teachers. Mm-hmm. And if I don't speak up and say something to administrators, nobody's going to. Right. So it, it strikes me that as a white man who is in a position of authority in my department, if I don't speak up, then I've just given the white supremacy system permission to persist. Well, that's amazing because that leads right into the first question. Um, what does it mean to teach, in our case here, languages, um, while white? How would you define that in the context of our topic? Well, you know, one of the, one of the difficult realities that I've come to embrace is that, that white supremacy – is and, and you know that those words sound I think frightening to a lot of white people. Mm-hmm. It simply means horribly means that 
the systems that we work in, that we live in, that we teach in, um, that we spend our lives in are set up to benefit white people. And it has become so unconscious that those of us who are white benefit without even realizing it. I've come to embrace this sort of mantra that, that white supremacy has infected and affected all of us. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what skin tone you have Mm -hmm. from the very darkest, to the very lightest white supremacy has infected and affected all of us. Mm -hmm. The real question, especially for white people is what are you going to do about that? Are you going to, are you going to, are you going to be still long enough to notice that however little, however great you benefit from your light white skin tone, what are you going to do about the fact that this system that has been set up benefits you? And then your response to that question is just really the rest of the journey. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that kind of goes into the second question a little bit. So we'll, we'll just go ahead and jump into it. What does that work look like uh, in your classroom? Equity work. Yeah. Um, one thing is the administration side of it, like you mentioned at the beginning, mentioning and as the department head and chair, um, having those tough conversations. But how do you assure that voices that are typically marginalized are heard? Um, meaning as language teachers, how are their voices, their lives and experience reflected in your instruction? Yeah. So look, when I walk into a room, um, and this would, this is where a visual would be great. I mean, if people could look at me, they, they would see, you know, I'm, I would be identifiable as a white man. Right. 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 You can see me. So you see that. Right. Um, we're on FaceTime. Yeah. Yeah. When I walk into a room and this is largely unconscious for most of us, but when I walk into a room, I walk in with all of the power that our society affords a white man. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter who is in the room, I still walk in with that kind of authority. But but here's the thing. Um, there are so many different experiences sitting there in the room when I walk into the room with that kind of authority. Um, last year, I had the, there was this moment. There was this moment. And I don't, I think it was probably because I've been reflecting and trying to, I call it working on my whiteness. Right. You know, right. I, I, I know some white people who, hate it when I say that, right. but I'm working, I'm working on my whiteness. And, and there was a particular day in class last year with a, a Latin five group. Um, and I, and I said, you know, before we start class today, I want to tell you all something. And they, they all kind of looked at me and leaned forward a little bit. And I said, I want you to know something about me. I am a white man. Right, right. And there was this there was this pause. Like what? And then and then they all broke out in laughter. You didn't know how to process that. Yeah, well, and uh, here's the thing. The like, majority what is he of the saying student, to me, I don't get it. We obviously see that, right? Yeah, right. And yet, why don't I as a white man ever have to say that? Exactly. Right? I mean, it's assumed. It's assumed that when I walk in the room with all of the power that affords me as a white man, that I get to take advantage of all those privileges without ever acknowledging it. So I thought, why not? Why not begin teaching my classes by saying, you know, early in the year, and this unfortunately was late in the year because it's, it's the moment that I came to it. 
But why not start by saying, I want you to know some things about me. And one of those things is that I am a white man. Now, this particular class was all girls. And except for one student in the class, they were all young women of color. And they laughed because what I had just said out of my mouth in, let's say, February, they had known for a long, long time. time. Yeah, nobody had to tell them that I was a white man. But the fact that I was taking the opportunity to say that about myself, and so they laughed, and then it got quiet again, and we broke into this long, deep conversation about what it means to own who you are in the room. And by saying that, it afforded each of them the opportunity to say who they were. Right. And that that's equity. That equalized things in the room. Um, no white person in this country, no white teacher um, in in the in in this country is required to identify themselves that way. Right. I think maybe we this is this is what you were talking about this is this is the work that white people um have we have I to think do are kind of required to take on exactly it, when, when we choose to identify ourselves we bring ourselves to the flat land to to level land with other people and say i'm white tell me about yourself mm-hmm. and it's also being aware of those implicit biases right even like you say, we come to the table with certain privileges that uh, you, yeah. when you say to your staff about uh, your whiteness and they're like, oh, my God, um, it's that they don't understand, right? The implicit bias yeah. and the privilege that comes with just being white. Yeah. Right? So there's yeah. A- yeah. No, I, look, I've, I've had conversations with colleagues in my department who are people of color, people that I love and respect who's who are doing great work. And there have been occasions over the years when I know that they have had pushback, let's say from parents or from students, um, maybe even other colleagues that I, you know, I look upon and I, and I think if, if I had been the teacher in question, the parent, the student, the colleague, probably wouldn't have pushed back. Why are they pushing back on this person? Mm. My goodness, is it really just about skin tone? Mm. And, and, And so I have the conversation with that member of my department. And I've said to them, I'm sorry, I apologize. Yeah. I say this in jest, but I say this very seriously. I apologize for my people. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? That people who look like me have behaved this way towards you because I know you to be this super teacher who does incredible work. You know, one of the things that I've learned is that when a parent or an administrator or a teacher questions me as department chair about somebody in my department, um, and, and I, I can say this with, with absolute um, confidence. Look, if my own child, I have three children, they're all grown. If my own child were at this school taking this particular language, I would want them to be in this teacher's classroom. It's, it's one simple way of lending the, um, my, my white privilege to the conversation. Right. To say, look at me, look at me. I am a white teacher and I'm a white parent. If my child were here, I would want them in this person's room. Right. It, it begs, it sort of invites the question then, why don't you want your child in this room? Right. And 
And yeah, you, so, you joked about, you, know, you said in jest, but in, in all seriousness also about apologizing for my people. You know, yeah. I, I would add that um, she doesn't need our apology. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I know what you're yeah. saying. I know where you come from, but uh, that's why I made that statement at the beginning. Um, this is our work that we have to do. Um, Absolutely. You, you know, Absolutely. she doesn't need our apologies. I mean, even though in, in sincerity, it's honest and it's real. But, you know, the work still remains for yeah. us to do to break down those those barriers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So more specifically in your classroom, Bob, I was looking at your blog uh, in a blog post called Latin and Western Civilization. And I'll link that in the show notes that all organizations and systems in this American culture are infected and affected by white supremacy. You touched on that a little bit. Yeah. When, which... When we think about teaching language as white teachers, this gets at the heart of this thing called implicit bias and deep systemic racism. How do we begin to unravel this complicated web of internal bias and the systems that were set up to keep people of color oppressed? I yeah. mean, you touched well, on it a little bit, but yeah, yeah. No, th look, it's this is this is maybe the most difficult piece for white people, and. And I'm, I'm saying this to white people. I'm not. I'm not defending white people, but I'm saying this to white people. The the most difficult, one of the most difficult things that we have to deal with, is a system that's set up to benefit us and then trains us to be oblivious to it. Mm. We we are we are we are have grown up. We've been born into and have grown up in a system that benefits us and then teaches us not to acknowledge that. How many white people have been taught? that it is an act of valor to say, I don't see color. Oh, my goodness. Many. If Yeah. I mean, all of us. Um, it, it, we have been taught that if we talk about or speak about or acknowledge the color of another person's skin, we have somehow offended. And, and, and so we have been taught that if we avoid all reference to color, we're being good people. Right. In fact, what we're doing is invalidating the presence of people in the room. Exactly. Right. So to say when I, when I say to, when I said to my students last year, I want you to know that I'm a white man. Mm -hmm. It was my way of saying I see color. I see you. I see not only the shade of your skin, but I see the shape of your face, mm -hmm. and I hear the accent in your voice. And I want, and I see the the way that your name is spelled, mm -hmm. and I recognize where your people come from, and I want to know your story. Right. When when we take the position that the the good and moral thing to do is not recognize color, we have just cut everyone out of the room that doesn't look like us. Well, it's that equality uh, argument, right? Everyone's equal in my eyes, um, right? And we right. know. We could break that down, but I don't think we need to do that here, right? That, as long, yeah, as long as you pretend to be like me, we're all fine, right? Right. I mean, that's, that's that is the narrative. The problem. Yep. And, and, and the problem, and look, I have a little sympathy for white people because I am one, and I struggle with this, and I continue to struggle with this, but not much sympathy because right. we have been the beneficiaries, right? Right. right. So I, I'm going to be sympathetic for a few minutes while you and, and somebody else, while we all wrap our heads around the fact that, um, well, gee, I was just trying to be a good person, but we've been duped. That's why I say white supremacy has infected and affected all of us. The infection for me has been in the past in believing 
that that not talking about color was a good thing to do. Right, right. Um, it's a lot, yeah. a lot of people's so, stories. A lot of people when they when they realize that it's it's difficult. And we talked about that implicit bias. What you just said, realizing that is is hard for a lot of white people. It it is because they, is. their sincerity is one thing, right? Um, yeah, and, yeah. And if I'm sincere, then just leave me alone. Right. Don't 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 ask me to do much more. As if that's but, the panacea that you know curing um, this systemic racism and white supremacy, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I mean we we ha- I mean for instance, you know one of the one of the things that we're we're hearing tossed around a lot these days, and I I actually uh, embrace it as a really useful thing for us to say is that race is a social construct. Mm-hmm. Race is a social construct. Mm-hmm. That means that it's been created exactly. uh, as a as a way of organizing organizing ourselves in the world. And if that's true, then we can deconstruct it. And I can I can take a step back and I can look at someone whose skin tone is darker than mine and say, "Oh my goodness, you are a brother. You are a sister. You are my people, and we have differences and we have similarities." Let's talk to one another. Right. And, and you know, that's what I want to be able to do as every young person walks into my room is to look at that person and say, you're one of my children. You're, you're one of my beloveds. You're one of those that I'm here not only to teach but to, but to care for mm-hmm. because you're, you're a member of my family. So you, you do that for people of color in your classroom. Now, Bob, you, if you teach – uh, a lot of white students. If if you have a classroom yeah. full of white students, what, yeah. explain a little bit the importance of doing this work, uh, and when, as you're a teacher in front of a classroom full of white kids. Yeah, it's it's you know it's been, most of my career has not had has not given me classrooms full of white kids. I've had a a, a couple of jobs where let's say the majority have been white kids. That's uh, a 30, those, 30 year career yeah, there. You've worked. In, yeah. Right. Yeah. In a 30 year career, I've spent more than half of it in classrooms that were not majority white. Right. But, but, but you I have been have in those been, situations. Yeah. I have been in those situations. And what I want, what I, what I have wanted those white students to understand is that a, a room full of white people is not the world that we live in. Right. It, it might even, it might be the neighborhood that you live in. In most of in most of my life, uh, past you know my teen years, it's not been the neighborhood that I've lived in. Right. And I remember years ago, I was teaching a school that was predominantly white, um, and I was living uh, in a neighborhood three miles from the school. And one day in this classroom, the a student said something. At where, so so where so Maggie's there. Where do you live? And I named the neighborhood. And, and, and he said, Oh, that's a dangerous neighborhood. <laughs> right. And I said, really, who told you that? Right. Well, my mom and dad did. My and mom. I said, really, I wonder why they think it's dangerous. And the student had no response. No response. And I, yeah, no response. And I said, so, okay. So I, so I get that. You're just repeating what mom and dad have said. I would love for your mom and dad to come and visit my house and to see my neighborhood and to know that my neighborhood is this really wonderful, rich place where all kinds of people live, and it's not dangerous at all. You know, I said, I said, you know, every evening after dinner, at that time we had small, small children. I said, my wife and I go out and we 
we put our baby in the stroller and our other kids, two kids come along and we, we just walk in the neighborhood. I said, do you think that we could walk in a dangerous neighborhood after dinner? And it, it was, it was clear that it just kind of blew their minds that that notion of dangerous neighborhood didn't match what they had in their minds. I mean, that's what I want to do for white kids. I want to kind of blow apart some of what they hold in their minds and, and, and invite them to think of things a little differently. Even at, I mean, no, no, I want them, to, I want to invite them to think of things a lot differently. Right, right. A even, lot differently. Even such that basic story of, of walking in a neighborhood that that student, yeah. student thought was bad, right? Even at, yeah. even at such just a, a surface level of conversation that is, that could open that student's mind, right? Um, sure. And, sure. Then, and then at that point, you can delve into the more pressing issues uh, of why that student and his parents would think that way. Right. What yeah. kind of biases that they have that are that are intrinsic, that are innate. Sure. And, you know, the, the, just the very notion of space. I mean, I just told you I live three miles from that school. But in that student's mind, I lived light years away. Because it it wasn't world. anywhere. Yeah, it was another world. And I, and I remember saying to that student that day, I said, I said, I just live three miles from here. Do you feel safe here? And he said, Yes. And I said, I just live three miles from here. It, it's not far at all. Right. Um, so it, it's that notion of of the distance that the, the distance that exists and the distance that we create in our minds. The disconnect in his mind, right? Yeah. Because yeah. of the narrative yeah. that he's been fed. And uh, yeah. so it's exactly like I said, it's up to us to break that narrative, you know, kind of dismantle it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So we have spoken a little bit about implicit bias, systemic racism and equity and how that looks in, in your classroom and our classrooms. Uh, oftentimes we talk about these issues. We are confronted with this thing called white fragility. Mm -hmm. um, how do you go about addressing this fragility? And for our listeners, that white fragility you can think of it as, as a white person becoming very defensive when we bring up issues of race, right? As we touched sure. on a little bit earlier. I'm colorblind. I don't – everybody's the same, right? So how do you go about addressing that type of fragility, whether it's with coworkers, friends, administration? You said you're department chair. Um, speak yeah. on that a little bit. Yeah, you know, so for me, this is a continuing struggle. Um, as a white man who grew up in, in, a, in a society in the Deep South that clearly benefited me, um, I have learned all the codes, all the codes for not upsetting people. Mm -hmm. And, and if, 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 if white fragility is anything, it's, it's, it's not upsetting people. It's not upsetting white people, right? Right. right. By the way, Absolutely. white fragility. I want to. I want to insert Robin D'Angelo's name into the whole discussion of white fragility. Absolutely. Her book mm -hmm. by that title is just amazing, and and I've had the opportunity to listen to a lot of her talks. Well, um, and, and I'll interject, and I'll say, follow that book up with Jamila Lyscott's book, Black Appetite, yes. White Food. Um, yeah. It's yeah. A, it's a. Uh, you know, it, I look at I look at D'Angelo's work as prepping you for this work, and and Jamila just kind of like slaps you across the face and like, <laughs> like yes. you know, it's time to level up and step up your game. Yes. So uh, I'll link that in the show notes also. But that's an excellent book to follow up. Yeah, with. And, and we need both of those. So you know, I mean, in, in terms of 
I say I struggle with this. I can. I think I will struggle with this until the day I die, and may I live a long life, right? But I think I will struggle with this till the day I die, because of of the of the schooling that we've all had. Um, I can look back on a number of conversations with colleagues um, where I walk away feeling horribly uncomfortable about what was what the what the the colleague said and what what I didn't say. Mm-hmm. And it, and and I've, I've I've shared this in a number of situations. I go home, I ponder, I spend days you know, sort of ruminating over why did I feel so uncomfortable? And it was because I was unwilling or unable, and I think both of those things are real, unwilling and unable to say back to a white colleague, wow, that really makes me uncomfortable because it sounds like you're making our colleagues or students of color the bad guy. And You didn't say it, I'm, and that in and of itself, is our privilege. That's it. We can do that. That's it. We can decide in that moment to say something or not say something. Exactly. Exactly. So, so the struggle is being a white person passing along with white people uh, and, and then developing uh, the skill set. And see, I think I have to say it that way. We have, as a white man, I have been raised and schooled in how not to upset the white apple cart. Right. I have not been schooled in how to upset it. And so, you know, as I'm uh, in my late fifties, I am working on how to upset that apple cart. I, I feel like being able to read the landscape of white people and, and how uncomfortable, the, un- uncomfortable they become around these issues is important. Mm-hmm. I, I'll take that as a skill set, mm-hmm. but th- it's not enough to know, Oh, white colleague is upset so i should back off that's a problem the the skill set is moving into a dear dear white colleague i see that you're upset i i want you to be real about what we're dealing with here right let's have these conversations let's have these conversations exactly right exactly right that's uh well that's it's tough work for sure and i i deal with it i teach in a title one school and um yeah, I just I simply don't have a problem calling out BS when I see it. Um, I think maybe for myself, speaking personally, I could, there's probably some strategies I could be a little nicer, I guess. I don't know, for lack of a better <laughs> word. Um, but I really don't have a problem calling this out. Not that I – I mean I have engaging conversations and intellectual yeah. conversations when I call people out. But when I when, – when my colleagues, my white colleagues say something that is just um, – uh, for lack of a better word, racist. Uh, yeah, I yeah. immediately call it out. No matter what we're talking about, no matter if we're having fun in the conversation, no matter if we're out having lunch together, wherever it is, I do that work. And I've okay, so 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 school us here for a minute. Teach us for a minute. When you call it out, what does that look like? Well, I have a conversation with that person. I mean, given given whatever uh, a person says, a lot of times. Um, well, not a lot of times, but sometimes when uh, when a colleague, a white colleague, will make a I'll make a joke. Um, I think the last thing I heard was, um, "Oh, you know these kids, right? These kids, right? 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 Um, right. I say, do you? So, could could you? It, it may start with just a simple question. I'll just yeah. I'll just stop and I'll stop them and I will say, what What do you mean by these kids? Oh, you know what I'm talking about. 
I'm like, actually, no. And I'll make that person define. Define it, yes. And then you, they start to stumble over their words. And at that yeah. point is when you say what you need to say to raise yeah. awareness in that person. Yeah. Whether it's uncomfortable or not. I don't try to yeah. make the person uncomfortable. I just take that opportunity to explain. Yeah. For me, the most important thing is having the person explain what they just said. And if yeah. they can't explain it, most of the times they typically can't because they don't understand that it comes from a place of sure. bias, right? They don't sure. they're, they're not aware of it, which is the case for most people, right? Yeah. Um so so you, so you just you just did something that I that I have found to be the most effective powerful tool that I've ever uh, been able to use and that's to ask questions and to and to ask the simple unvarnished question mm-hmm. you know whether it's the the guy at my door who wants me to sign a petition to uh, the city council to make it illegal for LGBTQ people to do X right and so I say to him how many how many LGBTQ people do you know right? And then there's the stumbling, uh, oh, uh, well, uh, uh, right. uh, right, right, right. Or the person who says to me, you know, all of these people of X religion from another country are trying to kill us. And I say, okay, tell me how many, how many of those people do you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 well, that's beside the point. No, no, that's exactly the point. But I will say, it, asking someone the question, having them realize they can answer it, and then explaining to them why that's problematic is yeah. one thing, right? Yeah. That yeah. person, the conversation may be over. They leave. The meeting may be over. They leave. I I make myself known in the work I do, and my door to my classroom is always open. Yeah. People know. I make sure that, that, that staff know, uh, colleagues know that they can yes. approach me anytime to yes. talk about anything. I'm very humble. I'm very open. I'm very inviting. So it's it's really after it's the follow up. To me, that is important because you Absolutely. because you can call someone out, you can make them feel whatever way they feel, and you can ask them these questions, and and they themselves realize, holy shit, yeah, you know. Um, but it's the follow up, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, a, a couple of years ago, in fact, it was two years ago. Um, administration invited me to do a professional development day with uh, offer a, uh, a module among others. And, and the module that I offered was the multicultural classroom. That's all I called it, and, you know, creating a multicultural classroom. And we had standing room only it was 30 seats. I think we had 35 people for the day. Um, and, and, and I put Robin D'Angelo's material in front of them. I put uh, Dr. Joy Degrees. I don't know if you know her or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's an African American. She she works largely with African Americans around equity issues, and Robin D'Angelo works with largely white mm-hmm. people around issues of equity. I put both of those people in front of them. It was largely a white crowd, but there were some of uh, some of my colleagues of color were there, and just put this information in front of them and created conversation broke up into small groups and created a conversation. And, and the day was over and I thought, okay, we're done. What amazed me were those conversations that came into the door days and weeks later right. from people who just wanted to talk more. And they were all white people right. who wanted to talk more, who wanted to tell a story uh, for whom uh, some of what we had done had raised issues and memories and they had nobody to process it with. So being that open door, being that um, humble, um, 
warm heart is really important in this kind of work. I mean, it's the, the, the work that white people have to do on ourselves is tough because it's a system that benefits us. Who, who fights a system that benefits you, right? And yet we, if we care about other people, we have to do that right. and do it somehow with a warm heart that invites people who look like us to come in and say, oh, my God, that's me. And I've, I've been that kind of a person. And I don't want to be that kind of person anymore. And that's a, that's a beautiful segue into the next, uh, next question I have for you. As you know, on my podcast, I love to ask people about their language journey yeah. to becoming a teacher. Um, yeah. So just take a brief moment and tell us about your story. Oh, you my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so uh, you know, as far back as I can remember, I have been fascinated with languages, and I have no way of explaining that. Uh, uh, something mystical, mysterious, spiritual uh, would be a, 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 the path that I would go on that, but I have no right, way of right. explaining to you why um, I have always been in love with languages, but I have been. Uh, and so um, I also engaged early on in college into a career that would take me into ordained ministry. And that's what I did for eight years. And even during those eight years, while I was in parish ministry, working with people in a lot of different circumstances, I was spending two or three hours every morning working on languages, the languages that I loved to study. And, 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 and then I had the opportunity to move into a school setting. I got lots of affirmation from people, even in, in ministry work, saying, Wow, you're a great teacher. Have you ever thought about teaching? So I had this opportunity to, to, to take a teaching job. And at the time, this was 30 years ago, at the time it was sort of a temporary position um, while I figured out what I was going to do next. And two or three years into that teaching position, um, I was out running one day. In the afternoon, I was out running for a long run. And I thought to, my first thought was, oh, my God, this might become – the thing that I do for the rest of my life. And my next thought was, oh, no, I don't know whether I even like teenagers or not. This was a high school uh, position. And it became clear to me that I needed to figure out that question. And long story short, um, I, I decided pretty quickly that, you know what, I, I, I like teenagers. I like working with teenagers because they challenge me with all the questions that I might not challenge myself with. And they're pretty fascinating people. And so I, you know, I went all in. I went all in. I began working on certifications that I needed to teach uh, Latin. And uh, oddly enough, that meant <laughs> working on a degree in Spanish first and, uh, and then and ultimately uh, getting a Ph.D. in Latin. Uh, but you know, after after that, after after that moment of do I care about teenagers, and I was able to say yeah I do, then I was all in to teaching languages, and that's what I've been doing for thirty years. Um, Amazing. Yeah, that's it. That's that's the short version. That's a that's a good short version. Um, so you will be at CI Midwest. Which I yes. I find is a is a great conference. It's um, amazing. It's amazing. It, it's this coming September. And yeah. uh, tell us about your session title for those that that is kind of a plug here. Those that may be attending and those that are thinking about attending. Your session title is 
can you see who's walking in the room? Um, yeah. Tell yeah. us about that a little bit. Yeah, so so that title comes from a, a, a sort of an aha moment, not too many years after that question of do I like teenagers, right? Um, it dawned on me, and, and it's become this sort of annual real, re-realization that whatever it is that I think I'm doing in a classroom, you know, what, however marvelous my lesson plans are, um, I do not know what each individual kid is bringing into the room. But what I am absolutely certain of is that they're bringing stuff into the room that I can't imagine. And if I ignore that, I ignore it not only to my detriment as a human being, but I ignore it to their detriment. Absolutely. And and that is just, I mean, in, in terms of moral responsibility, to ignore that these young people are bringing into the room mm-hmm. burdens and cares and situations that I'm not willing to acknowledge right. is as serious as it gets. So in that session, I want to look at things like ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences, which have been well documented, right, right. Um, and, and turn people onto that. I want to look at where where kids are coming from ethnically and religiously backgrounds. I want to look at uh, sexual orientation and binary codes that we use, and those are all big topics. So obviously, we'll look at them, you know, fairly quickly. But the idea is to break open the boxes that people live in and say, if you've not been paying attention to these kinds of questions. You should, because your kids are all walking in the room with these with these issues. Well, that sounds absolutely amazing, Bob. And to our listeners, if you're thinking about going to that conference, I would highly recommend it. Um, who knows? I may even show up myself, Bob. You never know. <laughs> That'd be great. Still haven't decided, but uh, I definitely would uh, go to that session. Bob, thanks for uh, being on the show today. Yeah. It- Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. Absolutely. And you are listening to What in the World Language Podcast.